Welcome to episode 156 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is good with you? You know, everything. Like, life is just great. Like, good food, <laughs> going over to have dinner with mom and dad later, we're going to have some black bean burgers. It's good. It's good stuff. Lord's Day was good. Church was good. Got no complaints. That is a grateful heart, and I really actually appreciate that testimony. What about you? What's going on with you? I, well, now I can't complain, even if I had anything. <laughs> but, I mean, that's just a really a great way to start, I think, out this cast. Because how many casts do you listen to where usually the hosts start off with some type of complaining? Now, we've done that too. But I love that we're basically saying, listen, it's the Lord's Day. We get to talk about the scriptures. We get to hang out together. There is nothing that is not good about this experience. Yeah. Yeah. Can't complain. I mean, I could complain, but I'm not going to. Yeah, except for the denials that we're about to nail down. But besides yeah. that, everything is fantastic. So well, yeah. speaking of which, do you want to go denial or do you want to go affirmation first? Let's do affirmations first. All right, you first. Go ahead. So I'm, uh, I've am i referenced this a couple times during this series, this Micah Cast series. And I'm going to officially, officially, officially affirm... Uh, maybe like an official affirmation is an officially, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to affirm the ESV expository commentary set. Um, I am Ooh, using fancy. this to help prep for uh, Micah. They've got one volume that is um, essentially the minor prophets, uh, but it's actually like Daniel through the end of the Old Testament. So it's like two major prophets and then a bunch of minor prophets. And um, the, the nice thing about this commentary set, we'll probably actually talk a little bit about this during the show, but this commentary set is good because it's really oriented towards kind of a busy pastor or a lay person who doesn't have a lot of time or doesn't have a lot of uh, mastery of the language. So they don't get bogged down in a lot of real technical details about the grammar and the language, but they do make comment on it and they kind of distill the insight from other scholars into something more digestible. Um, so there's currently five volumes out. Um, the whole series is going to be out eventually. They're pretty affordable. Each, uh, each volume is only like 30 or $40, depending on the length. Um, and like I said, they're very approachable. They're kind of from a self-consciously reformed uh, perspective, although I think the authors come from a pretty broad um, swath of reformed thinking. Um, but they're very good. They're very approachable. And they the uh, pericopes are obviously like, uh, keyed to the ESV pericopes. So if you're working through a text in something like this or a Bible study, or you're preaching through a text, it's really helpful because the kind of natural divisions in the text that you would use if you were using most modern editions, uh, they're already kind of divided up that way. So they're digestible and they, they kind of match what you're already looking at. And this is something we've mentioned before, but this is a great time for it to bear repeating. We've spoken at length about how it's just a joy to be able to study scriptures and to have it expounded to you. So sometimes these types of volumes, especially like study Bibles, get kind of a bad rap because they yeah. seem not as technical as other sources. And that is often true. However, it doesn't really negate their value because at the point at the end of the day is to have a transformed mind leading to a transformed heart. Right. Then any resource that's accurate to that degree 
is going to be one that's helpful. So I agree with you. Those are great resources. And I think they could belong in anybody's library. Even the yeah. most stoic and experienced and technical theologian would benefit from that kind of resource. And at the same time, anybody who feels like I'm just overwhelmed by all the types of resources that might be out there, and maybe by theology in particular, this is also a great way to get exposed to scriptures with more depth. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, each little section uh, is broken up. They have the full text there. So it's nice because you don't have to necessarily be juggling your Bible and the commentary. You've got the full ESV text there. Um, and then they have like a little outline of the section when there's major divisions in the text, like you might have, um, you know, like chapter five, six and seven of Matthew, for example, they probably will have like an introduction to those three chapters since they kind of form, even though there's multiple pericopes is kind of like a super pericope. Um, but they also have a response section. So there's a section where they talk about kind of the practical application of the text. You might even like tie this into our reform preaching cast, right? Sort of the, uh, right. the improvement or the experiential part of the text. So I, I actually read on Sunday mornings, I read this not only as part of my prep for uh, the show here, but also kind of devotionally, like I, I work through the text, kind of meditate on it. And then I have this wonderful resource that sort of unfolds it a little bit more, not on a technical level. So I don't get, I don't get like distracted by all the details, but really helps me. And you know what I found with this, this uh, series on Micah is there's a lot of ways to sort of get tossed around and turn around in the text if you're not having someone who can kind of help you through it. So it's just a really great resource. I, I think you're right. It makes a good addition to anybody's library and you're kind of on the ground floor. So like I've started to begin to like build commentaries as part of my library, which I never had. And it's really like intimidating to go look up a commentary set and realize you're going to have to spend like a thousand dollars. But now since this is a, a commentary set that's being published like right now, you can kind of add it to your add each volume to the, your library as they come out. And they're not it's not going to be like a 66 volume set. Um, so like they combine John and Acts, which is a little weird. I would have gone with Luke and Acts, but they're they're trying to keep it in the the biblical canonical order. Um, so it's nice because you can actually affordably add this to your library as they come out. You know, the more you and I talk, the more we have these conversations and record them. The more I notice that we say things that we that just blow by that we don't make comment on that in total abstraction just sound ridiculous. I love that at, at one point when you were speaking, you used the words super pericope. Yeah. Yeah, I was divided between super pericope and mega pericope or maybe oh. meta pericope. Oh, so good. So yes. many options. Like there's so many memes just waiting to happen with super I know. pericope. I know. What about you? What are you affirming today? If Well, speaking of our conversations, for those that have listened to us talk for any length of time, they'll know that oftentimes when it turns to affirmations, I'm like the resident person that's oftentimes recommending some type of music. And here's what's crazy. Over the last, I don't know, like six months or so, I recommended actually four separate bands that have released new music. Those bands were Wolves at the Gate, My Epic, Comrades, and Empty. And what's crazy is those bands are across different record labels. But, and this blows me away, it's, I think they're listening. And, and here's the reason why I think they're listening to us talk is they've all decided to go on tour together. So what? 
Yeah, it's kind of insane, actually. Like, this is a lot of great music happening all at once. So I would encourage you to go look this up. You can choose any one of those bands to, cir- or to search, but you'll find that they have tour dates all over the U.S. So I'm affirming this whole tour line of Wolves at the Gate, My Epic, Comrades, Empty. I'm really actually blown away that they're all going to be together. I, I don't know if they're going to be super near by where I am, but I've actually thought about traveling several hours to go make this happen. That's how good it is. So if you have not listened to them yet, you could just knock them all out in one night and then feel super fulfilled with your life and have your entire countenance changed by getting your face rocked off. So go check that out. That's my affirmation. You know, you and I are going to go to one of these concerts and we're going to be out there and they're going to be like, and our surprise guest, <laughs> City of Light. <laughs> And we're going to be like, they are listening to us. They'd be like, we never would have thought to put City of Light on our tour of this hardcore music. But since the Reformed Brotherhood recommended them too. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Or, or better yet, like we'll be there and they'll, and they'll be, they'll introduce us back. We have a special guest, the number one healthcare podcast. <laughs> They're all going to be wearing our t-shirts. <laughs> that would be fantastic. That would be hilarious. Uh, I, I might die. That. I might just straight up die if that happened. I would love. Maybe we just get them all to come on. Yeah, this is. I was blown away by this. I was like, "What are the chances?" So yeah, Providence, yeah. Providence. So what about denials? Kick us off in that direction. So I have a little bit of a double entendre um, denial to make. So with with the fact in mind that I'm not a big fan of like vague or like alluded forms of swearing. This wasn't intentional, but after the fact, it's actually kind of funny. Okay. I'm denying F winter. So it's <laughs> okay. pronounced Fwinter, but that doesn't come off on a microphone all that well. So I woke up yesterday morning and it was 32 degrees and it is barely October. And I know we try to avoid the reformed weather cast, but there are these times every year where we just have to talk about it. And it seems like winter is just... Uh, it's just on top of us for no reason. They got like four feet of snow in on the West Coast, up in northern Oregon, like Washington area. And I'm, I'm just I'm not ready. I'm just not ready for it. It's it. I don't know what to do about it. So if you have any ability to stave off winter, um, then please do so. OK, here's the thing. I, I can't we can't go any further without me bringing this up. This has happened in previous podcast it's something i wanted to ask you about can we just have like a moment of just real talk for a second let's do it i mean we're usually pretty fake so that, that's true this is all, this is all an act it, th- <laughs> this act of making it seem like we don't know what we're doing next that's all now it's all planned this is just it's straight true. scripted yeah. reality it's like reverse improv i'm gonna need you to say this word again v-a-g-u-e say that vague oh man is that how is that like the minnesotan way to pronounce that I just think that's the way to pronounce it. How do you say it? Vague. Vag. <laughs> yeah, it's like the difference between bag and bag. <laughs> or like sag and sag. I feel like you're still saying it. Vag. Yeah, vag. V-A-G-U-E, vag. No, 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 like long A. Vague. Vague? Yes, like no, that. No, vag. It's vag. No, it's it is definitely we we're gonna have to get like Miriam Webster on this. Is I've so I have heard the vag before, but I feel like it's been in the minority, and that's why I wanted to know if that was like when you came out of the womb in Minnesota, if that's the way you said it. I mean, I guess maybe. 
it's uh i mean how do you say the word like this the the dough that you get in new york that you put cream cheese on how do you say that word bagel yeah i say bagel get out are you serious no <laughs> I've yes never i mean yes say... i'm serious here let's I've try never this i've heard you say bagel hold on so so wait if you were going to write a poem you're saying you could rhyme fraggle and bagel yes that's <laughs> that's what that's our weekly challenge please write us a poem <laughs> in which the word Fraggle and Bagel are associated with each other. Uh, okay, I didn't. I didn't mean to hijack your denial because that's a really good one. I just heard the Fake. bag thing, and I was like, I Fake. need to get to the bottom of this right now. It could not go a second longer. Fake. Yeah, I mean Google's with you, but <laughs> wait, can everybody hear that? Or is it I just did me? it in the microphone. You didn't notice it, so it's like right in the middle of you talking. So. Uh... I'm just saying, but here's the thing. You're not alone. That I know there's a group of people out there who say VAG. They're also probably Naruto running and storming Area 51, but I know that there are people out there that are saying it that way. Hey, don't mess with Naruto. <laughs> I only just learned what that was. Have you, You've only... never seen an episode of Naruto, have you? Wait, is that like an actual, is that a person? Where yeah, it's, it's an anime character. And so the running, that form of running with the arm is just like stretched back. That is like his or her thing. It's like a really, it's like a really weird thing that happens. But in this show, they're all ninjas, and so all of them, when they run, they run. I think it's supposed to be like they're running so fast that their arms just get like dragged back. I think that's the, like the point of it. It's kind of reminds me of the Barry Goldberg run a little bit. Yeah, it, it definitely. So here's the great thing about this conversation. I feel like it's somewhat binary. So there are people that have just like, I've just offended. I've drawn all the ire of the people that are into anime. And then the other half has been like, thank you for explaining what that is because we've yeah. seen it on Twitter and Facebook and have no idea. So we like to hit everybody. You know, I, I'm wondering, I think vag is actually more, <laughs> more realistic because the word comes from the Latin term vagus. So we're going with vag. I don't know if I can bring myself to do it. Vagus. Oh, that's that's great. Which I means love wandering or uncertain. I love that we did this, but I really do feel bad that I've I hijacked inadvertently your denial because that's a solid denial right there. It's okay. I, are we on you now? I think we're on you now. <laughs> yeah, we can love it. So let me transition as best that we can. So this is actually kind of like a. a it's a serious denial, I guess. I don't know if I brought this up before, but I want to throw this out there because it's something I've been thinking about again recently. And probably anybody who's a driver has seen this in their distant uh, or not so distant, I guess, past. And that is I have a good friend who um, I was connected with through my wife and she and her husband lost their 26 year old daughter to a distracted driver. And so I'm really denying against distracted driving. And I think this is just very difficult because most people, if like you're around our age, you have your mobile device with you at all times, which means you have it with you in the vehicle while you're driving. And there's still just this, this sense, this overwhelming sense, that like you're a responsible person, you're adulting hardcore, and you can look at the phone, you can do something, you think you have good control of the vehicle and what's going on. And the problem is in this particular instance where their daughter was killed, it's the same story over and over again. Everybody always says they have control and everything's going to be fine. And it only takes one time. So it's kind of like a, maybe it's like a little bit of PSA style. I'm just encouraging everybody to 
just stop it. Um, just put the phone down. Like when you're when you're in the vehicle, set everything up so that you can listen to your podcast, your music, or whatever, and that you can access that as best you can through like the the innate ve- abilities of the vehicle. But set it aside. Like I know we always say, like there's nothing worth you know risking your life for a text, but seldom do we actually practice that because it's just so easy to be like, I can just look at it real quick, or I'm at a stoplight. But like, have you had this experience where like you you see somebody, and you can tell like the car isn't operating even like remotely close to like it's peak performance and you look and of course like they're looking down or like you look at a stoplight and you just look around and people have their heads down. They're clearly looking at their, their phones. Like it's, it's just endemic. So we need to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is super easy to, to get distracted in general when you're driving, um, even without like a mobile device. And you know, it's, it's weird because Ashley and I last summer, we bought a new vehicle and we actually opted to go, with a lower level uh, audio system because the, the the version of the audio system that was in the car we wanted, it like was basically like an iPad, like strapped into your dashboard. And it, it was like built into the car. Like no joke, it was a display the size of an iPad. It had like transitions and video display. And I was like, this is, this is too much. Like I can't, I can't even stay focused on the road properly just like trying to change the like the temperature of the vehicle is enough of a distraction. Right. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I think we, you know, I think if somebody needs to invent a car that like requires you to plug your phone into the car in order to um, start the vehicle and then like, or something that like disables your phone entirely. Because I think as long as the phone is there and is accessible, people will look at it. People will use it. For sure. I mean, there's lots of great apps. There's lots of great... Actually, there are many of the car companies have tried this kind of thing, but it's hard because the consumers actually don't really want it. And that's what makes it so crazy. We're talking about... I mean, this is like law and gospel in a sense in in that we just don't want to do the thing that is really actually good for us. And it's funny how in life, I know you've come across this, and I'm sure most people have who are listening to us, where sometimes you get to choose the things that you end up being passionate about. And sometimes those things are kind of chosen for you. Yeah. And if you had asked me a couple of years ago if I'd ever be outspoken about this, I'd be like, no, it's not that big a deal. But of course, that all changes when you know somebody who's been impacted by this in a real way. Yeah. Where something that seems like it's not a big deal is actually the biggest deal for this family. And it's yeah. something that what's sad is it could have been entirely avoided. Everybody on the, on both sides of this thing has been traumatically affected by it and their lives have been dramatically altered and all over texts, honestly. So that's what's incredible. So just day to day, just yeah, put the phone down. It, it's yeah. better for you. It's I think it's actually better for your spiritual life. It's better it's better for everything if we can put it down, but especially in our cars. There's just no need for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, so sorry for taking us. I mean, after that whole VAG controversy, VAG gate, I'm sorry <laughs> I had to take us. VAG gate? <laughs> you mean vague vagate vagate that sounds like we, some sort of strange like long island accent trying to say vacate yeah yeah vagate the premise to say somehow it, he became canadian at the end hey, yeah i was like where is that a canadian on long island yeah i think i pretty much ruined that word for our cast i'm sorry about that it's all right i'm sure it won't be the last time we ruin a word for yeah. our audience so what are we talking about on this episode 
For we real. are going to talk about the book of Micah, and we're going to look at uh, the very end of chapter two and the very beginning of chapter three. So this is actually kind of two pericopes, but they're both pretty short. So we wanted to kind of get through them. It's is like this, a, like wait, a wait, mini wait, pericope. Is this super pericope? Like a sub pericope. <laughs> a super wait, pericope super would be a big one. Then? What was that? What's super pericope then? That's like a clump of pericopes. More than two then? Because we kind of got two here. Yeah, but it has to be like, yeah, like a super pericope would be like multiple <laughs> chapters worth of pericopes. <laughs> Is there a Marvel character? That is yeah, super pericope. Super I feel like there should be. He just divides text up for you. He's like, oh yeah, just it breaks here. <laughs> this is where it is. Although in the in the world of Marvel comics, there are some crazy like people who have really useless, worthless abilities. Like there's a character in the X Men named Gold Balls, and literally all he does is shoot gold balls out of his hand. They're not like <laughs> they're not like super heavy. They don't have a lot of force. They, they're like, they just bounce off people and are annoying. But that's what he does. They call him gold balls. That's hilarious. Yeah. You know, once again, before we get into this, I just want to comment and say, there are times I just say things in our conversations because, I, you know, I think it'll be interesting conversation. And especially when it comes to like the Marvel universe, because I, I know nothing about it, as we talked about. I'm learning. I'm getting there, people. But what I love is that I just threw that out there, like, that should be a Marvel character. And I love that you were like, actually... There is some legitimacy <laughs> to what you're saying right now. <laughs> Speaking of Marvel, uh, we did. This is like a this is like a breaking news update. Although I'm like two weeks. Oh, late. it is. I was going to ask you about this. I know what you're going to say. Spider-Man is back in the MCU. Back. He's back. So we'll see what happens. What what's going on? I for one am very excited. So I think it'll be good. I I want to thank you for that because I was given that information at work. And I felt like I could participate in the conversation because I was like, oh, yeah, I understood that he was taken off the table. And, yeah, people were loving it. So thank you for preparing me to at least look mildly intelligent in front of my coworkers. I'm, I appreciate that. I'm pretty sure that it was all a publicity stunt because now even people like you who formerly had next to no interest in the MCU are now having articulate, intelligent conversations about the upcoming Spider-Man movies. Yeah, because even so. if you were not like intimately involved, like even I wanted to be like, how dare you, sir? Yeah, Give us exactly. Spider-Man back. Who do you think you are? Like you can't, it's a public, it should be public domain at this point. You can't just yeah. take him away. Yeah. We want Spider-Man yeah. and we want him now. Exactly. So speaking of Spider-Man, so Micah. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> where, where are we at with Smooth Micah? like gravel. Well, I'm going to read. So we're going to start in uh, verse 12 here. And this is one of those areas, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but this is one of those areas where how you divide the text up between pericopes really can make a difference. So um, the ESV divides this up where, where section 12 here, or verse 12 here, is the beginning of a new pericope, and there's good reasons for that. But uh, in Calvin's commentary, and we'll talk about how Calvin understands this, I'm sure. In Calvin's commentary, he actually considers verse 12 and 13 to be associated with the former pericope. And so we'll see when we talk about that, how it flavors the, the text and how it changes your, your understanding. And Calvin makes the good point in his defense, um, which tells you which direction I'm going to go on his, his interpretation. But in his defense, he makes the point that Micah didn't write chapter breaks or pericope breaks into his text, right? So right. so in some sense, it's an interpretive decision that 
rather than drive our interpretation, how we divide up the text should be driven by our interpretation. But that said, I'm going to start reading in verse 12 here, and I'm going to read through verse 13, and then we'll, we'll talk about that, and we'll go into the next one after a little bit. So verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep, uh, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Take it away, Jesse. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot here that's not vague. That's the first right. thing I want to say. It's true. Um, so, th- what's which? Sorry, I thought you were just going to usher us into like this really insightfulness. So I was, it's I was good. waiting with bated breath. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I actually I really like this this couple of verses because on this side of the cross, there's so much like beautiful foreshadowing. But but before getting to that, like. Mike is concluding like this first section of his prophecy with this brief little oracle of salvation. And, and part of this has to deal with, like you said, how we divide up the text here. But there is, from what I can tell, like there is a little bit of differing as like the particular event that's primarily in view here. So, I mean, just hearing this in your voice, you get this wonderful sense that something is coming. It's talking about specific event. It's bringing, bringing people together. It's a remnant being gathered. And so there's some debate whether that's the foreshadowing of the eventual return from the exile or if it's divine deliverance extended to Jerusalem when Sennacherib overran much of the land in 701 BC. And I think there's a lot that probably tends toward the second interpretation. Um, it, it also comports with some of what Isaiah himself prophesied. But either way, what we get is this deliverance that's emphasizing that God's chosen remnant is going to anticipate this greater triumph of the Messiah, this great shepherd king. So here's one of these wonderful texts in scripture where there's so much for us to chew on and appreciate because we have this telescoping in a way, but it's just wonderful on this side of the cross to kind of look back on this and see that there is this role for the shepherd king. That, In other words, like all these, all these little lowercase messiahs, that Israel has experienced, even here they're waiting for one to deliver them out of this temporal existence, which is going to be absolutely horrific for them. But even beyond that, those lowercase messiahs have always been inadequate. They've always been impotent to some degree, and they're waiting for that true messiah. And here we have that kind of bubbling up to the surface, even in what Mike is saying to his own people in this particular time. Yeah, I think that's really good. And and before we go much further, I, I want to talk a little bit about Calvin's view and, and why why I think he gets there and and where I think he goes wrong. So Calvin is looking at this text and he more or less clumps this text with the previous as an extension of the judgment Oracle that we read through chapter two. And so what, what's interesting about this is as you read Calvin, you actually get the sense that almost like he, he sort of wants to, interpret it the way that you're interpreting it. He sort of wants to go there, but he feels right. compelled because of how much of an interruption of things it is to retain this as part of the judgment Oracle. So, so what I, I explained this to someone earlier, it just struck me is God's mercy is so surprising that in the midst of this judgment Oracle, it's almost believe unbelievable that it's there. And so Calvin interprets right. this basically to say like, God is saying is still, it's still God speaking, 
But now he's saying, I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. And instead of using the word remnant here to refer to the sort of the saved elect or the, the faithful remnant, which is, as far as I know, the only way that scripture uses this concept, besides if it's using it here this way, he's talking about basically like the, the stragglers that are left over after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so those people in Calvin's view are going to be gathered together in a pen, as it were, and that's going to be like a multitude of sheep who are waiting for the slaughter. And so he, he has right. some good reasons for this. I don't know that we need to get into the rest of it, but he ties it in later to the next pericope we're going to get into where he talks about the rulers of Jerusalem basically devouring their people like livestock. And so he's seeing the text being a much more of a coherent flow here. And like I said, it's almost like he wants to understand this way. He, he totally acknowledges that even in his day, almost everyone that was interpreting on this interpreted this as sort of a, a, a stark statement of salvation in the midst of judgment. But he right. really feels like you have to keep it you have to keep the flow of this text. But I, I think that you and I would be in agreement with the vast majority of commentators, even reform commentators. Calvin is a weird exception to this, that this really does represent almost like this spontaneous, almost like a vomiting of mercy that happens in right. the text where, where God, you'll notice the shift from uh, the prophet speaking uh, about God to all of a sudden now it is God speaking right? That first person right. shift. It's not Micah saying he will assemble the people. It's God saying that he will assemble the people. And so there's almost this sense that, you know, Micah's delivering this oracle. He's delivering this prophecy that God has given him. And then it's almost like through the mouth of, of the prophet, God can't contain himself anymore. And so he, he shouts out in the midst of this judgment that there will be a remnant. So that's the first reason I would say that we should see this. We should legitimately see this as an interruption in the text because grammatically and linguistically, it absolutely is. It's a totally different tone and tenor and grammatical structure than the surrounding pericopes. And then there's this concept of the remnant. And um, this concept, as far as I can tell, this word group of remnant is used nowhere else in the Bible except to refer to somehow the, the faithful that God has per, per, um, preserved, right? So sure. uh, Joseph is sent forward into Egypt ahead of his brothers and ahead of his father to preserve a remnant of the people. Um, you know, um, Isaiah uses this term to talk about the remnant. That's the other thing is Micah and Isaiah are prophesying of the same people. There's a lot of linguistic right. parallels. And Isaiah definitely uses this term to refer to the believing few who remain in Israel. And Elijah is told uh, when he says, I'm the only one left, God says, well, no, I held back a remnant, a remnant for myself of, of prophets who are faithful to me. So throughout scripture, this concept of remnant is consistently applied to the, the faithful, believing, leftover few after God has kind of winnowed out the chaff and the apostates. Um, and then this concept of the sheepfold. The sheepfold is another one of those concepts throughout the scripture that is, is almost always used positively. I can't think off the top of my head right. anywhere that the concept of sheep is applied negatively to anyone. So it does seem strange to me that all of a sudden we would have this um, spontaneous statement of hope in the midst of it. But linguistically, theologically, you know, biblical theology across the board, that's where the text brings you. So it's, it's understandable to me why Calvin kind of sees this as a weird, like discordant note in the text. But 
it, it, that's what it is. And that's the beauty of it is that even in the midst of all this judgment, prophecy and Oracle, God still sees fit to sort of insert his, his message of hope in the midst of all of that. Right. There's something that Calvin gets, I think that's right though. He's, he's kind of pressing on a nerve that I think we sometimes easily forget about. And that is what makes the Christian religion unlike any other is that there is no compromise between mercy and justice. So if you look at any other religious worldview, if you look at any other behavior in our world, one of those two, the justice and the mercy has to give at the expense of the other. So you can exercise a great amount of mercy, but it'll always come at the expense of justice. And here it's almost like what Calvin is, I think in his commentary pointing us towards is that even if there is mercy embedded here, and I think there is some mercy embedded here, it's coming through God's judgment, which we see exercised on the cross. So there's always this consummate harmony and unity such that God never overextends his character. He never comes to a place where he compromises his character. And yet at the same time is able to grant the kind of mercy that we so desperately long for and really need for survival, but only because the punishment itself has actually been meted out and then born. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's something embedded in this passage where he's he's clinging to that as well. The sense that God is saying there there's real judgment coming. And yet at the same time, what's interesting is there is this break is like really crazy, honestly, because in other places in the scripture, we, we hear of God like breaking through his enemy. So like, for instance, I just pulled up like second Samuel five twenty, which is kind of reminiscent of some of this language. And that reads, and David came to Baal Perez and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me, like a breaking flood. But in verse 13, that thought is like somewhat different because the breaker here, which we might be able to say is the Messiah breaks through the prison gate and leads his people out free. So there's a different emphasis altogether, but I think they coalesce in this idea that God brings his mercy through and by way of his judgment. Yeah. And that's something that I think Calvin draws out really well. Yeah. And the, the other thing, you know, we talk about kind of the immediate event or the immediate fulfillment, right? So we haven't done a lot of sort of like general talk about how prof- prophetic books work, but this is a good example of the concept of prophetic telescoping, right? So we have we have a prophecy of some sort, and in, in most cases, there's an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a typological fulfillment in Christ. Right. And so Cal- Calvin, unfortunately, loses that in his interpretation, but Matthew Henry actually picks it up really strongly, and I think I actually think Henry is a stronger commentator on this than Calvin is. But we have this concept where it's the breaker, right? This phrase, he who opens the breach goes through. And then the next, the next line here is they break through and pass the gate. Well, those are the same Hebrew words. So it's really more like the breaking one goes up, they break through and pass the gate. And so there's this, there's this immediate fulfillment that we see where most likely there's some sort of the, the people of Israel are sort of trapped in uh, in the city. And, and so they have to breach their own siege in order to get out. And we do see that the King does that and it doesn't go well for him, but we see in Christ that he breaches the grave, he breaches the tomb. And then because he breaks the tomb, we're free to break free of it as well. So there's, there's this linguistic parallel that we have to recognize. And Christologically that has a lot to say about who we are in relation to Christ, right? Christ goes before us, not as some radically distinct 
different kind of person, right? He is a different kind of person, but that solidarity that he shares with us as well is really important. And so Christ, Christ doesn't do one thing so that we can do another thing. He does one thing so that we can follow in his path and do that same thing. So we are able to overcome death because Christ overcame death for us. And so we follow in his trail that he blazes for us. And, and the book of Hebrews picks up on that, that Christ is the one who goes before us. He's the trailblazer who goes before us. And so the same kind of linguistic parallel is happening here. And, you know, some would actually say that this language of passing the gate or breaking the gates, that actually has to do with part of the reason why Christ talks about how the gates of hell will not stand against his church. So if we, if we don't understand this as a statement of hope and future, the future coming Messiah as the, the typological fulfillment of this, then we really lose a lot of that strong biblical theological typology that I think is really present in the text. And there's so much here that's reminiscent of the old Testament, isn't there? I mean, we have this sense of course, when the Israelites are being led in the desert, that pillar of fire and that cloud And so here we have this language that returns us to this kind of ideology that God does go before us. He's also behind us. He's protecting us. He's hemming us in. He's moving us in a direction that is for his good and for, um, you know, our benefit. And I think, yeah, we don't want to lose sight of that because I think one of the best things we can do when we read passages like this in the Old Testament is ask the question, what does this say about the character of God? And this beautiful language of the breaker is something that is just so eternally contemporary because... Everybody I know, and myself included, there's always something. If you say, like, what does it mean to be free to somebody? If you ask them, what does it mean for you to have freedom? I would say 90% of the time, that person is going to start listing things that they would like to be free from, not things they necessarily like to be free to do. Right. And so when we get this idea of God as the breaker, he is the chain breaker. He's the one who makes the way. He is the one who is able to, in through the power of the Holy Spirit, mortify sin and bring us into higher levels of sanctification, not perfection, but into greater degrees of obedience and yielding. But this is real power for transformation in lives. I I just love to hear stories, some of which I've heard actually really recently, of people that have not just been in bad situations, but like, for instance, I heard a story, an amazing testimony very recently from a gentleman who was absolutely, completely addicted to all kinds of horrible drugs and was ready to take his own life because he recognized in his own self-awareness, even in the midst of that kind of addiction, that he couldn't get the help he needed. He had gone through actually several medical treatments to be freed from this and realized he just could not get the help. There was no power, or so he thought, that would be able to be to release him from the kind of bondage that he was in. And yeah. so out of actually frustration, almost kicking and screaming, went to the church and God freed him from that. And, and yeah. when you hear testimonies like that, sometimes it's quick to be skeptical and say like, well, here was a person that was just well-intentioned and because of the right set of circumstances, you know, uh, fine, they were released from something that was fairly addictive. But when you hear the kind of testimony where somebody was just at their wits end and recognize that they just spared of life itself and that there yeah. were, they didn't think there was anything that could help them and it is God himself who saves them. That's like the kind of person that's going to live the rest of their life just straight on interest because yeah. they know where they've been. But the fact of the matter is that's all of our story. And so I, I know I get bogged down, bogged down in my own life of feeling like there are bad habits I have. There are sinful habits that I fall into. And I just think, you know, the best I can hope for is forgiveness day to day. And, and that itself is a great gift. But I think what we get from Micah is this sense of reminder that there is power. 
that God is power, that he comes into your life with his full authority. If we would yield and submit to him in a real way, not in this kind of where we just play, give him platitudes for what he's done, but that we're actually concerned with our own holiness. We have like a whole episode, I think, where we talk about in some ways the Christian life is try harder. What we mean by that is not try harder to earn your salvation because that's a treadmill you'll never get off of. That's already been given to you, but it's the try harder to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pick up so much of that here in just these couple of verses. Yeah. Yeah. And then he closes out here. Micah closes this little section here and he says, their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So um, Calvin has to interpret this. He interprets this as saying their king passes on before them, meaning the king of Israel, wherever, wherever and whatever this refers to, whether it's leaving Jerusalem, going into exile, coming out of exile, this is referring for him to the the physical temporal king of Israel. Um, And then when it says the Lord is at their head, it's God standing at their head as an executioner, right? In judgment over them. Right. Like he's standing over their head, ready to strike. And, you know, I love Calvin, all due respect to him. And like I said, there's, there's decent reasons why he's reading it this way, but that just doesn't make any sense to me. Like it doesn't really seem to fit with what we understand about the prophets. And it, it makes Micah to say something very different than Isaiah in reflecting on the same thing. And so here's, yes. what Hen- here's what Matthew Henry says, and I think it's so good. He says, Christ is the church's king. He is Jehovah. He heads them, passes before them, brings them out of the land of their captivity, brings them into the land of their rest. He is the breaker that broke through them that rent the veil and open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And I think, you know, we definitely do have the immediate fulfillment, whatever that is. I, I'm with you. I think it probably is referring to the captives coming out of uh, out of uh, exile in the time of Nehemiah. It could refer to some of the, the Judah dwellers who fled from Judah to Egypt and set up kind of a thriving Jewish colony there for a while. But I think it probably is a return from the exile. But in the fulfillment of this in Christ, the typological fulfillment, we have Christ as the head of the people. And it's Christ right as Jehovah, as the Lord, as Yahweh himself, who is at their head, which just picks up beautifully with all of Paul's language about Christ being the head of the body, the head of the church. All of that language settles nicely into this prophetic paradigm. And and some commentators that I read actually say, this is probably a passage that Paul had in mind when he talks about growing up into the full maturity of Christ, who is their head, is that not only is Christ as a glorified human, the head of the church, but he is the head of the church as the source and origin of the church, God himself. Yeah, that's heavy. I mean, I think that suits with like the what Mike is saying here. There is that consistent thread throughout Scripture. I mean, again, either way you interpret this, I think what we get out of it is our God is the breaker. I mean, he's the one that says like sin and shame and addiction and bondage. If you want some, come and get some. This, this right. is the, the power that is he brings into the transformed and the regenerated heart. And it, again, it's not because of, it's, it's not based on some kind of meritorious work, but it, it's just because God is good and gracious. Like, and that's, what's crazy. Like, this is what makes grace amazing. Yeah. It would be enough for God just to absolve sin. It's something altogether different for him to give us his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to dwell among us such that we might live lives of holiness and obedience. 
And that's what the breaker is. So it's, it's part of it, I think, is walking around with your head held high, knowing that God goes with you, that he is the one before you, but that in a very real sense, he is with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I can't say this any other way. Like that, that just is an amazing reality to me and one that I can't even fully articulate. Yeah. And I think that the beauty of the scriptures, of course, is its timeliness in being able to address a particular situation. But for those of us now, as we're reading it and studying it, to look at it and be like, man, isn't God amazing? Like what he yeah. is demonstrating here through his people by way of his reference to Christ, the Messiah, the one who, like you said earlier, is the first fruits of the resurrection, is our brother yeah. who goes ahead of us. Like we just need to walk in that kind of power and light. Like we, there's nothing we can do about that. We just need to receive it. And walk forward in it with a different sense of confidence, not again in the fact that we've been chosen, but that God has been this kind of gracious toward his children. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way to sort of wrap up that little section. So we we can move on here to chapter three, and I'm going to read uh, verses one through four. It reads, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love the evil? who tear the skin off from my people and eat the flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So this, this section uh, jumps right back into judgment. So whether Calvin was right and it was one long stream of judgment or whether the, the majority commentation, uh, commentators are right and there's this interruption of uh, hope and mercy in the middle there, this jumps back in. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting here, the, the text makes it really clear who is talking now. So we've talked about how yes. in some other parts of the text, it's a little bit ambiguous, whether it's the false prophets, whether it's God, whether it's Micah, whether it's the people of Israel, but here the, the author is, or the speaker is identified as Micah. And so Micah, you know, Micah ministered for over 40 years. So it's not as though this was all he ever said. So what we probably have in the book of Micah is sort of a, a, a collection of greatest hits of prophecies or oracles that by the Holy Spirit, Micah assembled and collected together. And so he's going here now to a statement that he made to the heads of the house of Jacob, the, the people of Judah. And he says, listen or hear heads of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel. And we're right back to that theme that we saw in chapter two, where the the elite, the powerful of Judah, particularly, and uh, Israel, the, the northern kingdom by extension, they are being uh, punished and, and indicted for not properly caring for the poor in their midst and for oppressing and taking advantage of those who could be uh, pressed to the advantage. Yeah, finally, after all this time, we get to have cannibalism cast. Yeah. I mean, th what's in what's crazy about this is it's one thing, of course, to... He's already spoken at great length about the judgment that God is going to bring on his people. What's just absolutely shocking about this and really grotesque is the degree to which he describes this and how he likens it to cannibalism. It's really... Yeah, it's, it's really shocking, I think, in my opinion. Even, I think, for our ears to hear, there should be something about this where... It's not just another way he talks about like filleting their their flesh and eating it, but putting it in making a stew from it. Literally, yeah. it's almost like relishing what they're doing. 
And while I'm not advocating that this, this perspective that I have is part of even like a plenary interpretation of this, but in reading this this week, here's something that was really kind of my mind was drawn to is this, and again, I'm not saying this is what Mike is saying in this passage, but it's merely what it reminds me of. There's this strange juxtaposition. Here you have these people who are supposed to be the ones shepherding, supposed to be the ones leading, supposed to be the ones bringing the theological acumen and accuracy to bear in the lives of the people and then living that out in obedience to the Lord. But they're being indicted for their impotence, for their corruption, for their really, not just poor leadership, but their evil leadership, taking advantage. And Micah says, here's what that's like. It's like you're eating them, eating them yeah. alive, and you're enjoying it. You're relishing yeah. it. You're spicing it up. Uh, you're, you're making it, you're, you're cooking it to such a degree that you want to make it delicious and let it marinate in, in all this evil. And then we have in this New Testament... Another example that people often, those who are kind of unfamiliar with the Christian faith, label as cannibalism, and you have this idea of the Lord's Supper. There's a different kind of eating of the flesh in the sense where we are given life and um, restored. It's, it's the exact opposite. And while that's certainly not what Mike is talking about here, I just found that juxtaposition really fascinating. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the difference between those who are tasked with protecting and ruling uh, over a people, feeding off of them, and Christ, right. who rightfully rules over his people, feeding them with his very self. Exactly. So in, exactly. instead of this selfish taking and devouring that which is entrusted to you, it's a giving of yourself to preserve and protect and nourish that which has been entrusted to you. It's, it's precisely the opposite of what Micah is indicting here. And, you know, he's, he's talking specifically to the, the rulers who are tasked with uh, understanding and enforcing justice, right? So in the very beginning of the establishment of kind of the judiciary of Israel, right? We go back into uh, the Torah when um, Moses appoints the 70 elders to help him rule this this mob of people that ha need, have a need for judgment. They have a need for courts. And one of the first things that, that God says is to uh, to not take a bribe and to judge impartially. In the Hebrew, the idiom they use is literally without respect to faces. And so the idea right. is these kings and judges and rulers of Israel and Judah were supposed to be um, issuing justice solely based on the facts of the incident or the, 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 the thing at hand, as though they couldn't even see who the plaintiffs were. That's the picture that we're being given. And instead, what's happening is precisely the opposite. Because of the fact that these people are poor and weak and liable to be oppressed, the rulers press that advantage and they devour them as though they were eating them. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think that this is directly a prophecy of the fact that cannibalism was going to happen in Jerusalem under the siege, but it did. Right. And so you, you have to imagine that the people, you know, it, the, the prophets have this weird relationship with Israel where, you know, obviously this book was revered by them in that it was recorded. It was considered scripture. It was treated as holy. It was preserved and protected and transmitted throughout the ages. 
some of that had, was happening during the siege of Israel, right? We have good evidence that these scrolls, the, the Torah scrolls and the scrolls of the prophets were preserved in special ways during the, during the siege and the fall of Jerusalem. And the fact of the matter is, in the midst of people literally eating dead corpses in their midst. I don't remember where it is, but there's a, there's a scene in the scriptures where one of the Kings is, is basically confronted with the fact that they have to do this right in the midst of all of that. People are reading this prophecy, which is saying that the reason that you're being forced to do all of these terrible things, this judgment has come upon you physically you're being driven to cannibalism, cannibalism because spiritually you already started the cannibalism decades ago. So the, the physical outflow of this judgment is a, is a direct and logical consequence of the nature of their spiritual sin in the history past. And that, that's the way it happens so often, I think, is that we, you know, I'm not getting into like the weird charismatic general generational curses thing, but so often we commit some sort of sin, spiritual sin in our hearts. We have some attitude or perspective that's wrong. And when that finally bubbles up and has some sort of temporal consequence for us, the, the crime, uh, the punishment fits the crime, right? So whatever the right. consequence of our sin is, if we're prideful and arrogant, and that is the, the spiritual nature of our sin, almost all the time, you know, I, I don't want to just be, I don't want this just to be the slam on Tulian um, show. And sometimes it becomes that, but Tulian's pride and his lust both sexual and his lust for power and celebrity. When that finally all blew up in his face, what did he lose? He lost his wife. He lost his pulpit. He became a laughing stock. And even now, as he started to try to return himself into ministry, for the most part, reformed people and, and Christians in general look at him and go, what a joke. What a total joke. Why would I listen to anything he has to say? And, and right. so the, the consequences of his sin, the temporal, physical consequences of sin match the spiritual character that, that births them, right? Temptation, when fully conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's embraced, gives birth to death. And that death takes the form of the sin in which it was conceived. And, and that's just a good spiritual principle that we see, and not like we should ever avoid sin strictly to avoid consequences, but thinking about that for a second is going to help you understand why you should avoid the consequences in part, right? If you don't want to have a big embarrassing fall, then learn to not be prideful, learn to not be arrogant. If you don't want to have your family destroyed by, uh, by adultery and pornography, then learn to tamp down the sin of lust in your heart before it ever becomes anything else. It's just a good principle that we can draw. Yeah, there's something here that I think we need to really do better at trying to bring and apprehend into our normal lives because the language here, this strong language of comparison to cannibalism, and like you said, basically we've spoken previously about how Micah compared the condition of the people, spiritually speaking, to a disease. The problem I see in our own lives is that the spiritual state, that spiritual condition is ephemeral, it's enigmatic, it's hidden, it's not, it's unseen. And so when they use these examples like Micah does of cannibalism, I think what he's trying to do best is to say, you don't understand just because you can't see your sin. Let me give you something that you can see, that you can yeah. comprehend, that you think is absolutely grotesque. And in this case, he uses cannibalism. In other places, he talks about disease. But the reality is what he's saying is, and I think Christians who've understood this best know that the spiritual state, the natural man, filled with sin is 
ugly and destructive and hollow. And those who understand that best, who can actually see that kind of ugliness, who, who under understand or can actually feel all those odious parts they're the ones I think take this the most seriously. And I, I want to grow in that area because when we read this stuff, we can easily think, yeah, well, you know, of course, corruption is horrible. These guys are taking advantage of everybody else. Yeah, they deserve it. Go get them. Go get them, God. And yeah. the fact of the matter is we're no better off, really, that our sin is just as egregious and that the way we are inside without God is just as ugly, that we would eat our brothers and sisters figuratively and literally yeah. if God in his efficacious gracie grace gracie graciousness that's grace and mercy gracie if his grace and mercy if he did not in some sense withhold us even that kind of just common grace so i'm all in with what you're saying Uh, you're you're absolutely right i mean this is is a big deal and it's it's why i think it's worth studying these kind of texts continually because it draws our minds back to where they ought to be and that is one that we need this breaker. We need this one to come through and like break, bust out the wall, like Kool-Aid man style. Like, oh yeah, come on. It's this way. Get out. Yeah. And also the one that's willing as we, as we suffer and as we fall continually, that can pick us up and in his grace say, you know, you're forgiven child, you know, come and be will go and sin no more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that struck me, um, I've mentioned it uh, several times now uh, over the last three years now that we've been podcasting is God has really sort of given me a new desire to read the, the scriptures in their entirety. So ever since I became a Christian, I've always been a student of the scripture. Like I've always wanted to study and digest and understand the scripture, but I did so kind of in isolated texts. And over the last, really the last three years since we've been doing this podcast, I've had this more pressing desire to read the whole Bible every year. And one of the things that I'm learning through this study of of Micah, and as I've studied some of the other minor prophets, um, understanding the book of the books of first and second Samuel, first, second Kings, first and second Chronicles is really, really important if you want to understand the prophets. And so maybe one of the things that I'll leave to kind of close us with here is just an, an encouragement for our listeners to not not just skip over or or gloss over or read through quickly the historical sections of the Old Testament. Like, you know, like if we joke about how like, all right, Genesis moves pretty fast. You know, it's all narrative. It's pretty quick, except for a couple quick genealogies. And then, you know, the first 20 chapters of Exodus more or less is pretty quick. And then it's like you slam into the law and you just like, all right, I'm just going to skip to Joshua. And then like you read like the first five chapters of Joshua and you're like, all right, we're back to genealogies and numbers and, and censuses. And then you you slam forward to judges. You miss a lot when you read through and you skip over those portions, even things like recognizing a particular name in a text and being able to associate that with where it came from in the rest of the text and chase it down is really, really helpful. So I would encourage people, you know, a good yearly annual Bible plan is great. Um, I'm actually trying something for 2020. I got started a little bit early because I wanted to, to sort of spread it out a little bit more, but I'm actually reading through and I've broken the text up into four kind of starting points. And I'm reading two or three chapters uh, of each starting point each day. And by the time I finish with 2020, uh, I'll have read the entire Bible four times over. And so it's, you know, it's like 
five minutes per section. So it's 20 to 30 minutes a day to read the entire Bible four times next year. It's really not that much of a time commitment in the grand scheme of things, but I'm already feeling like I'm, I'm having a better grip on the text and, and like I'm actually using my time productively by investing in reading the scripture. So I would encourage you, you know, pick up a good reading plan. Um, I'm not a huge fan of chronological reading plans, but I did one last year and it really helped me understand the prophets particularly. Pick up a good reading plan and start working through now. If if you feel like the Bible in a year is too much, get started now. The Bible in 14 months is an right. easier an easier task to tackle than the Bible in 12. Or do it over three years or do it over 10 years, you know, whatever it is is a specific goal to make it through the entire Bible uh, in a defined period of time is an admirable goal, the goal that will, I can promise you, if, if you're a Christian and you're generated by the Holy Spirit, spending time in the Holy Scripture is one of the single most profitable things you can do spiritually for your life. It just is. Totally agree. In fact, that's a really great challenge to lay down because I would say, try it and see if it doesn't mess up your life. Just try yeah. it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, really just spend consistent time in the scriptures a little bit every day and then meditating, praying through that. Just, just see what it does. Like you should want to do that just to see one, if we're true to our word on that and two, what will happen. Yeah. Um, and so to that end, actually, one of the things I want to throw out for people that have been tracking with us, or even if this is your first time listening to either this cast or this whole series on Micah is get in on this and yeah. continue to read with us. But I would love, and I'm sure you would too. Uh, to have people leave us a voicemail just saying like what God has been teaching them through Micah as we've talked, either as they've been reading it, as they've heard our silly little voices speaking some commentary into it. And you can leave a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Yeah. Yeah, we would love to hear it. We would love to get some, I mean, I don't know how much we can address them on the show, kind of ad hoc, like we do sometimes with question casts, but we would love, especially as we get closer to the end of this Micah cast, we're probably a little under halfway through. Um, We're going to be going well into the new year. Um, I would love it if we could have some questions specifically about Micah, whether they're technical questions about, you know, particular verses or passages or whether there are questions about application. I would love to do a question cast when we get towards the end of this, that's specifically about the questions that have come up and the, the how we apply Micah. So if you have questions, give us a call, leave us a voicemail. And I would really challenge you, you know, um, my reading plan I'm doing is I'm starting one, one starting point is Genesis. One starting point is Isaiah. One starting point is Matthew. And one starting point is Romans. So start now, read two to three chapters every day. By the time you get done with 2020, you'll have gone through the whole thing four times. And honestly, that's probably twice or three times as many, maybe not three times. That's probably twice as many times as a lot of people have ever read through the whole Bible in their entire life. So it really is, I mean, it really pays spiritual dividends. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that along with, uh, memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism on, uh, the 10 commandments starting in like question 60 ish or 50 ish, um, that will mess you up too, because as you memorize the perspective of what the law actually means, you'll start to see all throughout the scripture, how the 10 commandments are repeated. So for example, when I read here, hero heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? What I hear is the responsibility of superiors to inferiors is to enforce justice and to, to, uh, to apply discipline in a just and merciful way. 
right? That's straight out of the Westminster Larger Catechism of the responsibility of superiors to inferiors or from leaders to, to followers or however you want to phrase it. Well, right there, verse three, instead of some ethereal violation that the, the rulers have, have committed, there's a straightforward violation of the fifth commandment which we think about as honor your father and mother, but it really is about all relationships of authority and equality in, in creation is encapsulated in that. So this, this more in-depth focus on the scriptures as a whole, and then taking time to understand God's law, especially through like the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, something like that really will just, it just change your life. Like it really messes you up in like the best possible way. <laughs> Yeah, or maybe I, not in a great way, but in a good way, probably. <laughs> no, in a way that obviously is for God's glory and for our good, ultimately. I, I, I'd laugh because I love that. I love your excitement. And that's why I'd love to get more voices in on this. Again, call, leave us a question. Or in addition, I would say as well, share a little bit about what God is teaching you and maybe some of your testimony in that. You have to be brief, yeah. of course, because the voicemail will cut you off. There yes. is judgment in our voicemail. It just cuts <laughs> you off after a certain period of time. So you, you have to be brief. But it would be great for us and others to just kind of hear what God is doing across his family in all different yeah. parts of the world. All of those who are listening and part of the Reformed Brotherhood, we would love for you to be a part of that journey and to express that by way of leaving a voicemail. So one more time for those in the back, the number is 607-444-2767. Well, Jesse, I think that this maybe has been the definitive Micah cast on Micah <laughs> chapter two. <laughs> Verses 12 through 3, 4. So would you agree with I that? I that you use that. I'm just yeah, going to steal you, it from you because then you can't ask me. You know, I'm always saying like basically whatever, whenever now you and I get together, whatever topic we're talking about, we that is the definitive resource going forward into the world. It's true. And it's never vague about what we're talking about. <laughs> I knew that was going to come back <laughs> up. All right, Jesse, this has been a great show. I think I'm really excited to continue this uh, series on Micah and to just keep on Me too. digging into what God has for us. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.